Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We're going to start off by uh, reading our text for the day, which is uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. So if you would, if you have a Bible, if you would turn there with me. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. You able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. So as you can well see from that text, today's message is about serving. But it's not a sermon centered on moralism. I'm not here to just say, hey, we're Christians and we just serve. This is a sermon centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I make that distinction because so often when we look at different Christian literature, or even at times when I, the way I live my life, and um, you know, sometimes we can, we can lay our lives on this, these moral set of principles, but we can leave Jesus out. And when we leave Jesus out of the picture, do you know what we have? We have a false gospel. But the more we understand Jesus and the more we understand what he's done for us, the more you and I will desire to serve him with our whole lives. But let's all be honest with ourselves, all right? You and I fight serving. And why? Why is it that you and I don't naturally have this desire to serve? And a simple reason would be that service requires humility. And you and I are naturally prideful people. I don't care how long you've been saved, how long you've been following Jesus, you are not naturally or inherently humble. In fact, Scripture paints a picture of what men and women are naturally. If you want to take some time, you can listen to uh, Brad's messages on, on Romans chapter 1 through 3. But if you look at, just scan through the book of Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul paints a picture of our natural condition. 
Romans 1.18, you know what we all naturally do? All of us, we all naturally suppress the truth. We want to push it down. We don't, we don't want it. Romans 1.25, we all exchange the truth of God for a lie. Anytime we turn to something other than God, we are turning to a lie. We all do that. Romans 1.25, again, we all worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We find more value in the things God makes versus God himself, and we all do it. Romans 1.28, we all don't acknowledge God. We all don't give him the credit that he deserves naturally. And hence, it leads to Paul's summary statement in Romans 3.23, hence we all fall short of the glory of God. And no matter where you stand theologically, right? I mean, as Christians, we all believe that sin has affected uh, uh, all of us. And naturally, it, it, it causes us to, to be number one on our own throne of life. And what we tend to do is anything that attempts to usurp our authority or someone else tries to be in charge, we naturally reject that and we fight back. And none of us in here or in the world are outside of this. This is every single one of us. We are all prideful people naturally. And do you know what God thinks of the proud? Peter and James in the New Testament quote Proverbs 3.34. I wanted to read to you uh, Peter, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Peter first addresses the elders of the church. Now he addresses younger people and then he gives a challenge to everyone. He says in verse 5, Likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elders, the elders of the church. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's how God feels about prideful people. He opposes them. So naturally, as prideful people who are so self-centered, We have God, the creator of the universe, that opposes us. And when you look at that verse, it leaves no middle ground, my brothers and sisters. They're either the proud or the humble. And we're all naturally the proud. But thanks be to God that he gives us grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? So this account that we're reading of here in Mark chapter 10 is also told in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, but we're going to be spending our time here in Mark. And we see here in 35 that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus and they, they request something of Jesus. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So James and John come up with this pretty bold request. And this request is made after Jesus explains for the third time that he must suffer and die and that he'll be raised from the dead. But James and John are just like, yeah, yeah, that's cool, Jesus. Um, We want you to do something for us. Don't you love how they approach Jesus? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. (laughs) They wanted a guarantee that their request would be granted prior to them revealing their request. And I'm so thankful for the patience and grace of Jesus, right? Like he didn't give them a backhand, you know, or he didn't didn't get angry. He didn't get bent out of shape. He, He, in fact, he entertains their request, right? And in fact, he says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? It's these kind of questions that get to the heart issue. You see, Jesus doesn't say, oh, yes, I'll grant it. 
He asks a question. Because you know what questions do? They reveal the heart. They reveal intention. Verse 37. They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So even though that there are some holes in their understanding, in James and John's understanding, you have to give them a little credit here. You see, they are acknowledging that Jesus indeed is a king. They are acknowledging that there is, this, there is some sort of guaranteed victory that is going to come to them. They just have a distorted view of it. Just as you and I can have a distorted view of the scriptures. Take heaven, for example. How many distorted views of heaven are, are there out there today among Christians? How many people think that in the end we're going to all be wearing white, decked out choir robes and be equipped with wings and have golden harps and, and sing Amazing Grace over and over and over again? So just as they could be deceived and distort Scripture, so can we. And the disciples, they were still buying into the belief that Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, He was going to bring in, usher in His kingdom through force. They had this picture of what the Messiah would look like. And they also thought that Jesus' hierarchy of power was structured just like the world's. You see, the places of privilege in a royal court were on the right and left of the king. And that's why James and John were asking for those seats. We want, we want those seats. Yes, they believe that Jesus has victory. They believe that he was ushering in his kingdom. Again, they just had a distorted view of what that looked like. And this moment, this question revealed that their intentions were selfish, for they wanted the highest positions of power for themselves. You see, for these two disciples, the question, who is the greatest, had not been settled yet. If you flip earlier to Mark chapter 9, look at some of your headings. You'll see the transfiguration. You'll see that Jesus tells them a second time that he's going to die and be delivered, and of course he's going to uh, raise from the dead. But right after that, all the disciples are arguing over the question, who is the greatest? And it had not been settled yet. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, Jesus, in other words, is telling them, you guys have no clue what you're asking for. In fact, you guys are speaking in ignorance. You see, the cup in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy, but it was also a symbol of retribution and suffering. Jesus here was speaking of the cup of God's wrath against our sin here. Hence, he was telling them for the third time that he had to, that he had to be delivered over, over to sinful men, die, and be raised from the dead. And this is the cup that only he can drink. We talk about baptize, that verb baptize, which has a basic meaning to dip or immerse, was commonly used in a metaphorical sense of being flooded or overwhelmed with calamities and hardship. Jesus was speaking of the suffering that was about to come to him from without. Jesus was getting prepared to take all of our sin, all of humanity's rebellion against God. Jesus was getting ready to take it. He was about to be flooded and overwhelmed with the wrath of God for our sins. And he would do so willingly. That's the, that's the interesting thing about King Jesus. He wasn't forced to do it. He, wanted, he willingly took that cup. 
And James and John, they cannot participate with Jesus in this specific redemptive sense. What Jesus was about to do, James and John could not do. So 39 to 40. And they said to him, this is their response. We are able. We can do it. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So let's credit James and John, all right, for this answer, because they did have a radical allegiance to, to Jesus, right? But in their mind, they're thinking, all right, let's, we want to be with you. We want to usher in this kingdom, and we want to be in the front lines with you as we, as we overtake Rome and as we, whatever force we need to bring, we want to be there with you, Jesus. But they just had no idea what it meant for Jesus to be the suffering servant, Yes, Jesus was literally going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. And yes, James and John will participate with him. Not in the specific redemptive sense that Jesus was speaking about. But they were going to suffer because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We know that, for example, James... He became the first apostle to die for Christ, Acts chapter 12, verse 2. We know that John, he escaped physical martyrdom, but he suffered much in his lifetime. He was beaten, boiled, and banished, and left to die in his old age to see much of the church turn their back away from Christ. So yes, they did suffer much. But Jesus still wouldn't grant this request because it was an earthly request. See, James and John had asked that these positions be given to them as a personal favor. Jesus wasn't having it. Why? Because Jesus was there strictly to do the Father's will, and it's entirely up to the Father who sits where. Verse 41. you got to love this, right? This is all of us, right? (laughs) And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This isn't a righteous anger, all right? This is, we are angry because James and John verbalized our request. We want that position. And thankfully, Jesus is Jesus. And here in this text, we see that we have a come to Jesus moment, right? He corrals all the 12 together. And it's almost like if he doesn't take the decisive action that he does, there could be some division among these knuckle-headed disciples of which whom we all fit into that category. 42 to 44. Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here is one of those Christian paradoxes, right? That we're not really used to. Jesus says, in order to be great, you've got to be a servant. In order to be first, you've got to be a slave of all. So some great advice here, huh? So brothers and sisters, what I want to encourage you is, we look here at Jesus' teaching, and he says, He's saying there's the way that the world operates, right? The world operates that that people of power, they rule over other people. And not only do they rule over other people, but they lord it over them. And for some reason, we respect that. 
Hence you have, you know, like famous songs that sing about, you know, money and power. But then Jesus looks to them and he's speaking really to all of us as followers of Christ. It shall not be so among you. The way the world does it, all right, should not be the way we do it. But how often as Christians do we, do we look to the world for, for, to, to, to consult us instead of the word of God? How often are Christians going to Oprah and Dr. Phil for relational advice versus the word of God, which speaks about every kind of relationship? How foolish it is sometimes that we do that. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. How the world lives, you and I cannot live that way. In fact, this is how you are to live. Now, if we were to end there, this would be a gospel of works. It would just be, hey, just serve and just do this thing. But I'm so thankful we have verse 45. Look at that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We serve a king who not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. And he lays the example. He's saying, I am the foundation. He's saying that I am the baseline for all this. I am the greatest example. You see, Jesus, the great king, he shatters all of our paradigms. And this king, who was the maker of all the heavens and the universe, humbles himself, takes on the flesh of man, and comes to earth to serve a people that hate and despise him. You see, a ransom is the price paid to effect the release of prisoners or captives. And you may ask, who are the prisoners? Who are the captives? It's you and I, all of humanity, because of our sin. Because we naturally reject the things of God, because we naturally, literally, we look at the creator of the universe and, and we point our finger at him and we accuse him and we say, no, you will not rule over our lives. Because of that, we are held prisoners to our own sin. And if you look at that word for, a ransom for many, another way to say that could be instead of. So literally, we see here this teaching about someone becoming our substitute. You know, we should, have, we should have died that death, but someone was going to come and substitute themselves. And here's this beautiful, beautiful gospel picture where we see the one life of a redeemer for the many who will be saved through him. And exchange one life for many people. And our King Jesus, the greatest servant, didn't need the approval of man. You know why? He had the perfect approval of his father, and that's all he needed. And our king is a servant. Can we just think about that for a moment? The king that we worship is a servant. That's like an oxymoron. That's crazy. And one of my favorite passages that describes Jesus, the servant king, is Philippians 2. We don't have time to, like, you know, exposit it, like, explain it. But I just wanted us to read it together because this explains the heart of our Savior and who he is, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let us set our gaze upon Jesus, all right? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the Bible never ever tells you to serve or love apart from who and what you are in Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Right? The Bible never says, hey, just forgive, right? The Bible that's always followed by forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ. So here the teaching would be serve as you've been served in Christ. Serve as Christ himself, the king of the universe, is a servant. And you see this word, he emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he emptied his divinity. No, it means that he did in, him, did in a way limit himself. He left the throne of heaven, the privileges that come with that, to come to this place to serve a people that reject him time in and time out. Because he took the form of a servant. See, serving was a reason Jesus came. Serving was Jesus' life posture while he was here on earth. Serving was a voluntary act of Jesus. And you know what serving cost Jesus? It cost him his life. But we see here so central to the identity of Jesus, our Savior, is one of a servant. And because Jesus is a servant, those that are in Christ we are servants as well. It's not that we serve because it's some Christian-y thing to do. No, we serve because we are following Jesus, who was the greatest servant of all. And we can understand this with the family metaphor, right? In John 1.12, Jesus says that to, to, to all who believed in and received his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And we understand that. Okay, if you're in Christ, we're now his family, right? We're children of God, understandable. But more often than not, I confess I do. As humans, we act like spoiled and entitled children. What do you do with a spoiled child? No, you don't kill them, all right? You discipline him. What's the big deal about obedience? Remember, our identity is grounded in God, and I cannot say, I mean, can I emphasize this enough. If it, it can't be grounded in anything else, and if it is... If your identity is, is grounded in anything else other than what Jesus has done for you on the cross, your whole life will be set off course. You'll be led astray because it won't be grounded in God and his gospel. If you're too big or proud for obedience, then you know what you're saying? You're saying that you are better than Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the greatest example of a servant. Jesus, again, God in the flesh, humbled himself and he learned it through obedience to his father. He obeyed the Father perfectly by doing everything the Father had sent him to do. And here are a couple of observations on serving that I see from the life of the greatest servant. 
Serving always costs us something. Always. Whether that's time, energy, finance, whatever, it always costs us something. Serving is always inconvenient. There's never a moment in which serving is convenient according to Webster's Dictionary definition of convenient. Serving always humbles us. When you take on the posture of a servant, you will be humbled. And serving grows us in ways that we never imagined because it's the way of Christ. And it is the way of growth. You see, the challenges that serving in this way bring tend to sway us from following after Jesus. Because most of the time, what is, what is behind us not serving is disbelief in Jesus and his glorious gospel. I mean, we too in this day and age, we have misunderstandings of Jesus all the time, just as James and John did. Like, for example, this. We all know that Scripture teaches that Jesus is going to return one day, right? We know that this life that we're living now is temporary, right? It's going to be but a blink of an eye in comparison to the age to come, the age that Jesus is going to bring. But how often do we make this age the age to come? <laughs> and we think that it's all about this lifetime now. It's all about what I can do now in this, you know, 70 years or 70 plus years that I live, if God grants me that those many years. How often do I live in what's called the gospel gap. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are easily led astray. And I'll be the first one here to admit that I confess that mine is. Instead of believing I'm a servant, I often believe I'm a king. You know how? Because I think I'm, 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 I'm in charge or I control my own destiny at times or I live my life apart from from, from Jesus' uh, guidance. And when I live like that, I'm living as though I'm a king of my own life and not a servant. And it's so important, brothers and sisters, this, this teaching on identity is so central. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you are always going to be led astray. And I guarantee that most of the time, the times that we are led astray is because we don't know who we are in Christ. I'll give you an example of something that happened in my life recently. Um, prior to... Um, Prior to coming to Christ, I, I, had, uh, I had anger issues, and you know, I, would, I would often get into fights. And um, this, 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 uh, over the past couple weeks, we, um, I had this, this uh, email exchange dialogue with someone in my life, personal, and um, we had some heated email uh, dialogue because of a circumstance that we're both in together. And, uh, you know, we began to just, you know, it began to start off as, you know, like, hey, trying to encourage this person in the Lord. And, uh, you know, everything just kept backfiring where there was just emails filled um, with, you know, just um, accusation and, and, and slander and just, um, you know, uh, words just, of, of just questioning everything I believe in. And I got very angry. And for the longest time, man, if, if we were in the same room, I'm just going to be vulnerable here. We would have gone to a fist fight. Like I was ready to, to throw down with this guy whom I know. And then I began to examine that. I'm like, Whoa. because I got after, after, you know, after getting angry. You know how after you get really angry, you have that moment where you come down and you're like, man, I was just an idiot. Anyone ever have that moment where you kind of see like hindsight's 2020 and you're like, dude, I must have looked like a lunatic or crazy person in my office typing and, you know. 
and just embarrassed. And, man, the gospel began to minister to my heart. It's almost, I, I, really, the Holy Spirit was just saying, Chris, you're letting the words of a person define who you are by the way you're reacting. You're not letting these words define who you are because if you did, you wouldn't get bent out, you know, you don't get bent out of shape. You would know who you are and you would respond by who you are. You would respond as a servant. You would respond as a prideful, arrogant, angry man. So I had to repent. Thankfully, I'd written this response and I didn't send it. I was able to go back and, uh, you know, write it with grace. But not because of me, because prideful, arrogant Chris would have sent this, you know, other, you know, just slanderous and hateful mail filled with things that I would have regret sending. But if we don't know who we are, we're always going to be led astray. If you don't believe you're a child of God, you're going to always look for value somewhere else other than from your father. And that's going to set the, the, the course of your life. You see, being a servant is central to who we are because it's central to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you have a hard time serving, you know what? I'm going to say most of your reasons for not serving are selfish. How do I know that? Because most of my reasons for not serving are selfish. And I'm a person, and I know that the rest of you are people in this room. And we are all naturally rationalizers. We, We are the best creatures at rationalizing. We can, man, we can come up with some sophisticated plans in, in these minds of ours to say, man, how we can justify where we stand. Can you, I mean, think about the excuses that we tend to give of why we don't serve. I'll give you some of mine. I'm busy. <laughs> I really don't have time. Some people may be like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. I, you know, like I, and there's a lot of self-doubt there. Some people, it's just too hard. I'd rather not embark on something that's too difficult. It's just going to be frustrating. And we're all naturally going to find some way to ra- rationalize. But can you imagine if Jesus Christ used our same excuses? You imagine if Jesus was like, man, I'm just, I'm just busy. I don't have time for these people. These people are just too difficult. They're arrogant. They refuse to obey me. I mean, forget it. I'm so thankful that our king does not think like that. And if Christ lives in you, you too will follow his path of service. Brothers and sisters, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, your life is not your own. You are now a servant of God, or as Paul says, you are now a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That if, you, if your life had a title on it, it would not have your name on it. It would have Jesus Christ's name on it. There'd be no liens on it, no lien holder. It'd be solely Jesus Christ. And serving is hard, right? Amen? Can I get an amen? Serving is hard. Serving is difficult. Serving is challenging. Serving is inconvenient. And you and I, let's just be honest, naturally, we don't want to do it. And we need to acknowledge that this is a battle. And you and I as believers have three things that we wrestle against that the Bible clearly paints. We wrestle against the flesh, the devil, and the world. 
And know that these three things are opposed to the things of God. And guess what? If we follow Jesus, we will suffer. I don't know where we you know, have gone led astray with prosperity gospel doctrine about you know, suffering is evil or it's not from God. And, um, no, that, that's, I mean, bull honky. You know? that's, not, that's, that's, not, that's not scripture. You see, Jesus Christ himself said that no servant is greater than his master. Hardships, afflictions, challenges do happen for a reason. And Paul, who suffered much in, in, in the lifetime that he lived, this is what he wrote about, about suffering and hardships. Look at um, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened, burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. All right, Things were getting really bad. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on who? God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he would deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he would deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Did you catch that in that verse? Why all the hardships and afflictions and different things that happen in our lives, and everyone is going through a different one, all right? They happen so that you and I would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, the beautiful thing about that is we see the power of the resurrection. As God raised Jesus from the dead, so too will he raise us up on that last day in victory. Maybe, you, maybe in this lifetime we will not see the victory that we're looking for, but there is a day that's going to come when Christ comes back as a conquering king and he will raise up everyone. And those that are in Christ are going to share in his victory one day. And what fuels us to serve is the love of Christ. We must focus on him. We must focus on him because Jesus alone will sustain us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. A few chapters later, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. And why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, you look at verses like 2 Corinthians 5, and you see that there's only two things that can control us. The love of Christ or the love of self. It's kind of similar teaching to Galatians 5 where Paul talks about two two. Two influencing forces in your life, the spirit and the flesh. And you can choose which one to follow. And each will produce fruit, different kinds of fruit. You see, the devil can't control you as a believer. He can influence you, but he cannot control you. He knows the flesh. He knows that the love of self is still within us. And he knows about the sinful nature, but here Paul says, what is it that controls him? The love of Christ. 
Don't ever, ever think that you can be controlled by anything else. It's either the love of Christ or the love of self. Think about this. Most, again, most of, the reasons, most of the reasons why we don't want to serve are selfish ones. I'm not going to say that there's never a valid reason, but I'm going to say a lot of the time, the reason why we don't want to serve, in whatever capacity it is, whether it's you know, in the opportunity of a coworker, neighbor, or, or a family, or in whatever capacity, it is a selfish reason. And like I said, we come up with all these ways to rationalize our explanation, right? But think about this. I've had many times where I didn't want to serve. I've many times I was frustrated with people, fed up with people, just sick of like ungrateful attitudes and just like just tired of it, right? And I would, you know, I would begin to, to get anger in my heart and I would begin to cast judgment on people. And then the Lord rebukes me. He says, Chris, you know that you too rebelled, but yet I give you grace every day. Lord, I'm having a hard time forgiving this person. You know that, that um, you know how much I've forgiven you because of, of, of what I've done. I gave my very life for you to redeem you. But Lord, it's, it's so hard. Yeah, it was very hard to, to go to the cross and to die on Calvary. You see, if we don't always bring it back to the love of Christ and the gospel, we're going to turn to something else. So brothers and sisters, get used to to, to preaching the gospel to yourself. Because when you preach the gospel to yourself, the more beautiful Jesus becomes. And the more beautiful Jesus becomes, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more naturally a life of service will follow. So brothers and sisters, when we talked about God opposing the proud, how do we break that bondage of pride? It's an everyday battle, all right? And the way we break the bondage of pride is by surrendering to Jesus moment by moment. And how do you surrender to Jesus? As Jesus instructed us in Mark 1, 14 and 15, repent and believe the gospel. And he also said that the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, the kingdom of God is not a geographical location, all right? When the scriptures speak about the kingdom of God, it's talking about the reign and rule of Jesus, all right? Because there is a way that the kingdom of the world operates, and there's a way Jesus' kingdom operates. And when you begin to walk in obedience to the ways of Christ, guess what just has happened? The kingdom has come upon you. You begin to experience the reality of the life in the kingdom. And the kingdom has come upon you. So if there ever was an equation, we see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble... We see that God's wrath is on sin because God's wrath is on all rebellion against himself and he must judge it because he is holy. But if you are in Christ, the wrath of God is no longer on you because Jesus paid it all. He died the death you and I should have died and he was literally our substitute. And this is how he came to serve. So brothers and sisters, let this be good news. The grace of of Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. Amen? I mean, think about that, right? Think about everything in life that tires out. Could you, could you run mile after mile after mile after mile? I can't even run a mile, but there's some of you that are long-distance runners, right? But if you're one of those, could you run mile after mile after mile without exhausting? At some point, you would tire. At some point, everything this world has to offer will tire. And the only inexhaustible thing that we have is grace. 
the grace that we have in Jesus. You see, every time we fail, every time we fail to not follow Jesus, every time we fail not to serve, guess what's there? Grace. So what I want to encourage you is, all right, this is not a message of condemnation, but if you haven't been serving or you've had a wrong attitude, come before the throne and repent. Repent and believe the gospel and receive the grace that he offers you and let that propel you to serve. Let us give up our preferences. Let us give up our sense of entitlement that we so desperately cling on to at times. Let us give up our independence and follow him who is worthy of all worship. Amen? So in closing, I just wanted to give some some opportunities for you to serve. And please know that this is not... um, uh, We can have the praise team come up. This is not uh, an exhaustive list, all right? This is not like a, hey, no, this is the only way to serve. I just... I just wanted to give some practical ways for, uh, for, for all of us in general. Um, for example, every Sunday, the children's ministry uh, needs people to help. Um, that's a great way. You know what? And, and, and working with children humbles you, all right? I know some, some of us are scared of children. I used to be scared of kids, you know? Like, man, like, I don't know why. I just had this fear of kids, you know? But, but serving children humbles you. It forces you to wrestle with real-life issues because you're like, man, i got to explain this to a kid. And C.S. Lewis said, if you can't explain it to a kid, you don't understand it yourself, you know, any kind of doctrinal teaching, you know. And like, man, explaining suffering to kids. And kids just ask the raw questions, right? Like, they don't hold back. They're not like, you know, there's no, like, formal etiquette of, you know. I mean, kid etiquette is like, bam, just ask the question. And it humbles you because at times you have to say, well, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that, you know. Pastor Shane, no. Um, but our children's ministry, great way to serve. Great way to humble yourself. And for some, that may mean that you may miss out on, on a service. But again, right, serving is sacrifice. I mean, we do have two services, but you, you get the point. It may mean you have to wake up a little earlier to come. It's, it's, it is sacrifice. Um, another way that I can think of is um, we have a big festival called Love Alaska coming up June 7th and 8th. And right now, the festival's greatest need is uh, they need counselors. There is still need of 600 counselors, right? And I look at this room, I see many just able and, and, and uh, just, I mean, awesome people here. And that's one of the most important positions there because as the gospel is preached, people are going to receive Christ. And what they need these counselors to do is to, I mean, it's just, it's just, to, it's just to go to the people and, and help them and walk them through what they're doing and get their information, and get them connected to a local body, all right? And I know counseling is kind of an intimidating word, but you can do it. It's just an hour-long training online, all right? But they need 600 still, all right? Um, they, they initially needed 1,200, and I think they have 600 now, and they need 600 more. So I want to challenge you. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, it doesn't matter, okay? Like, just put yourself out there. Serving is always going to take you out of your comfort zone. Um, family. Serve your family well. Serve your city well. Serve your neighbors well. I mean, your state, this nation, and, 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 and the ends of the earth. Some of you, you know, some of you, I think there are some in this room that have this desire that God has called them even at an early age to, I mean, to, to, to a people group. You know? Embark on it. Make the choice now. Or whatever else it is. I think so often we have all these things that we want to do. We want to serve in this capacity but we, we fill our schedules with so many other things that, and then, and then we just forget about it. 
I remember watching a skit about, um, uh, back in college, there was this uh, skit that this Christian group had done, and um, they had this young girl on stage, and she was being tempted by Satan and, his, and her demons, and, and they tried to tempt her with all these, you know, like, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and she was like, no, 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 and they finally go back to, to their enemy, to, I mean, to, uh, not enemy, to Satan, and they're like, man, we, this girl, she's not stumbling, what do we do? And he's like, dude, this, you just got to go at it a different way. So he puts his arm around her, and he says, hey, you want to do all these great things for the Lord, right? You want to do this? She's like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do that. And then he whispers in her ear, and he says, but you got time. And then she just, she looks at everyone, and she goes, yeah, I got time. And she leaves stage. The time is now, people. Whatever it is that God has put on your heart, serve him now. The enemy wants to delay, 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 delay. Naturally, we want to delay, 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 delay. But the time is now to serve So in whatever way that God is calling you to serve, I ask that you do that. Take a step of obedience and let the kingdom of God usher upon you. Let us pray. Father, you are so patient with us. It's actually pretty comical how patient you are with us. Often find myself laughing at your grace and your patience, and not in a mocking manner, Lord, just in a in a baffled manner. Thank you, God, that you are a father that not only loves all his children, but you are a father that pursues his children, that disciplines his children, that forgives his children, and that longs to not only for his children to be reconciled to himself but for his children to be reconciled to each other. Thank you, God, that you are a God of grace and mercy. And God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who willingly chose to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, because, Lord, I confess, Lord, who am I? Who are any of us that we're worthy of being saved? But yet you did it. And we are thankful. And we want to be a people that are marked by humility. Forgive me for my, for my pride and arrogance so often, Lord. Lord, um, I pray that this would be the prayer of all of our hearts. That for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord Jesus, kill the sinful man within us. Kill the sinful man so that the only man that matters can live through us. Lord, help us to be a people marked with humility and with love. And I pray that whatever sphere of life that we live in, that we would choose to serve you in it. And that because we've chosen to surrender to you, that more people will come to know that God is a gracious Father who is wanting to grow his family. So God, to you be the glory forever and ever. It's in your Son's powerful and mighty name we pray. Amen.